Och jag heter Tessa Praun. Jag har arbetat tillsammans med kvällens föreläsare på hans utställning här på Magasin 3. Så att det är med stor glädje som jag kan presentera Johan Grimon Pre för er här ikväll. Ett av våra senaste inköp till samlingen det är Johans absolut nyaste film som heter Double Take. Och jag kan tänka mig att en del av er redan har sett verket som finns längre in i salarna här. Det är en film som bygger på dubleringar. Det är en hel del arkivmaterial, framförallt från 60-talet, i form av nyhetsrapporteringar om kalla kriget. Det är material om och av Alfred Hitchcock. Och även en hel del ganska obskyra, knasiga reklamfilmer. Och allt det här vävs ihop med en berättad historia om hur Alfred Hitchcock möter sitt äldre jag. Så att över hela den här filmen så ligger det ett generellt tema och det är de här dubbleringarna eller dubbelgångarna. Eh, Johan fick sitt stora genombrott på 90-talet med ett verk som heter Dial History. Och det är ett filmkollage som tittar närmare på flygplanskapningar. Och framförallt hur media har rapporterat kring de här flygplanskapningarna. Och jag vet att Johan är en, en väldigt spontan föreläsare. Men jag tror att vi kommer få se en, en, ett klipp i alla fall från den här filmen. Och för den som är speciellt intresserad av det här verket så finns det även en tidskrift som Johan har gjort. Och det är samma typ av research som finns i den. Och den är utformad som en tidskrift, en sån där som man brukar hitta i stolsfickan på flygplan. Då med det ganska överraskande innehållet flygplanskapningar. Här så finns den att läsa, läsa i vår entré. Runt hörnet här framför biblioteket så har vi installerat ett av Johans verk som heter Youtubeotek. Så att det här tidningsprojektet är som en addition till det verket. Och Johan kommer utgå från Youtubeoteket för att berätta om arbetet med Double Take och tematiken och hans intresse för de ämnena som man tar upp där. Så, so, um, yes, it's really a great pleasure to have you here. And uh, I hand over to you. I was thinking of um, starting with the website which is dealing about the history of zapping in relation to the commercial break. But for me it's sort of like a template of how I go about, about to, to come to work and to build on and research and explore certain themes to come to the next project, like a next big film. Because there are always big elephants, not only financially, but also to, to dig into a certain sort of thematic matter. It takes some time to, to, to dig to the material. And since also, I'm not only a filmmaker or an artist, but I also uh, function as a curator sometimes, where I set up a collection of films. And one of the works that has been traveling a lot was the video library, which was uh, one of the first time it was installed was at the Documenta 10, Catherine David's Documenta. It was called at the time, Beware and Playing the Phantom, You Become One. It was at the time still a VHS sort of video library. It has sort of changed throughout together, also how technology has changed. It became a DVD tech, and then nowadays it's sort of a YouTube tech. But also with that, the format has changed a little bit as well. And... Um, While VHS was still the sort of like you rewind and fast forward and you, you, you go and sift through the material in a very different way. With the YouTube tech, it's all about download time. So even the respect and how we relate to images has is sort of inscribed also the way the, the, the video library or the YouTube tech has been installed. And for me, that's sort of crucial 
this way of how you relate to new media, but also how you can carve out your own niche uh, within mainstream media. So maybe I start with the website that sort of uh, explores the history of zapping and explores zapping in relation to the commercial break because it's sort of a condensation of how the video library was set up. So you have like a little bit of clips in the left uh, uh, head corner and then you have sort of text bits and the way to surf through the video library or the, the website is you can go chronologically through decades like here you could go and explore time by time through the decades how zapping came about from the 40s, 50s, early uh, history of television towards the 2000s were actually a big shift was the beginning of the 80s and the 80s was crucial for me also for me Dial History the previous film the previous bigger film was a way to work through that big shift from the 70s to the 80s which is the big shift from you know uh, when before 1980 uh, the journalist still went into the field with a Bolex camera it was still a film camera and by the early 80s the video camera has become it existed a long time before but it was so bulky that journalists didn't work with, with the video camera, but by the, by the beginning of the 80s, it had become so small that the journalists went into the field with, uh, with the video camera. But not only that, it's also the beginning of CNN, beginning of MTV, beginning of cable, and by the mid-80s, you see that every television is sold with a remote control. But the remote control and the fact that everything becomes sort of, uh, became sort of uh, stocked on, on video, also made that we related to, to imagery and to the news in a very different way. And you see that by the mid-80s, zapping was so omnipresent that the advertising industry was calling for zap-proof commercials because people were zapping away from commercials. So all of that sort of, and definitely for Dial History, was sort of crucial to work through that material, how the television landscape had changed from the 70s to the 80s. But not only that, in relation, it explored also how the representation in the news has changed, but also how political life has changed. And, you know, mid-70s is sort of a crucial period where it's also the beginning of the counter-terrorist movement. It's, you had hijacking, but by 1975-1976, it's sort of, it's the first time that they start attacking planes to shoot the hijacker. And sort of the political climate changed drastically also the mid-70s. We came from the 60s, mid-70s, for me, when working through the material and the relationship with pol politics and politics and the news, for me, was also a crucial change leading up to the 80s and the beginning of video. So the video library and, and the website. So the condensation here in little text blips also traces that, that history of zapping how from radio and how radio really incorporated channel surfing. And here's a little anecdote, like the fact that because of a commercial break, people were zapping away from a more popular program to Orson Welles' program, War of the Worlds in 1938, which caused that people missed the disclaimer, that actually a whole panic came about, that people thought UFO, UFOs or flying saucers were landing in New Jersey. So this is like a little anecdote from the beginning. Television hardly existed. It was still in a very experimental stage, but then 1939, the next year, the first year after that, the Empire State had the first antenna, and we see on the, on the, on the World Expo in New York that the World Expo is opened live on TV, but it was still very simple. It was only in the, in the city areas, Los Angeles and New York, that they had television. But sort of 
going on with the inception of television, it also traces how the commercial, and, and that is also, I have to say, that is also geographical tied. And Europe was very different in Belgium, in my country. It was not allowed to have commercials up till the 80s. 80s changed a lot of that landscape as well. But in, in uh, the three nat main networks in, in the United States were always sponsored by commercials. So Camel was one of the first sponsors for, for the news, for example. I don't know, there's little clips that actually, for example, also what I've incorporated were little clips of the very first commercials for the remote control. So this is one. And here it is. The greatest advance in television since color television itself. The ultimate in performance and convenience. Seven function remote control color television so beautiful, it enhances any decor. Clean, modern styling. No knobs or gadgets in sight. Superb cabinetry, master crafted of the finest woods. But the outstanding feature of this great new color set, the one big feature that sets it apart, is an amazing new wireless wizard electronic remote control. So this is sort of, I think it's probably 1959 or RCA Victor. I think it's the areas, I think this commercial dates from 1959 or 1960. And what I want to come to today, like in, in the talk I'm giving, is to sort of link my earlier work with how I came about to make Double Take. And 1960 was sort of crucial because a lot of cinemas were closing down and, and, and television was on the rise. And sort of Hollywood had to redefine itself and sort of early 60s was sort of crucial to start analyzing. It's also, well, you see, for example, that Hitchcock also took a television. He was already making five years of, of, of television, television program Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And by 1962, 1963, the program had become one hour. It was so popular that it has become one hour instead of 20, 30 minutes. And, for example, with Psycho, which is also was shot in 1959, came out in 1960, he was taking a television crew to shoot the film. So it was sort of like coming up in the beginning 60s that we have the 3D cinema that they experimented with. Hitchcock was actually the first one who was asked to experiment with the genre, which was Dial M for Murder, which was the first 3D picture that they were trying to make in, in uh, Hollywood. And you see also it's the beginning of Panavision. It's, it's, it's the trying to experiment with new genres. It's actually because they were trying to, to attract the audience to back to the, to the cinema. But, you know, the television was so on the rise that 40 or 50% or 40 of cinemas were, were closing down by the early 60s. So that's sort of a climate that I'm zooming into in, in Double Take. But also what I thought when I... I don't know how many people have seen Double Take. I don't know if I should give a little bit of an introduction, but there is... There's two Hitchcocks. There's Hitchcock meeting Hitchcock, basically based on a Borges story. And it's Hitchcock the television maker and Hitchcock the filmmaker. And Hitchcock the television maker, uh, when I was researching through all the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, that I, I, I sort of like noticed that Hitchcock played a lot on the idea of the devil. Like um, there's about 300, if you include the Alfred Hitchcock hour, there's about 350, 370 episodes that he introduced so there's about like 300 hours of, of Hitchcock introductions, which, which actually hardly in cinema still has been looked at. But it's sort of a crucial part of Hitchcock's work as being the television prankster and joking precisely with the television format. Not only did Hitchcock contribute a lot to how the vocabulary of the film 
language was established, but also he, he, he was very much also part of that early television landscape. And the fact that the commercial was so much part of that television landscape, it sort of like became a thing that I wanted to work with. And uh, Hitchcock had a sort of a very ambiguous relationship with, with the television format, precisely because always interrupted by the television format. And now what what for me was sort of crucial to analyze in, in this sort of history of the remote control is that by, by for example, the mid-80s when, mid when the advertising industry was calling for zap-proof commercials, that you see that the format changes a lot. You see that instead of, of uh, 30 seconds, the, the commercial becomes 15 seconds, or you have in-program commercial advertising, or you, you see that actually the commercial doesn't have a beginning. It sort of disguises itself as if the program before hasn't ended and immediately you're into, into the middle of a commercial and you don't even know. And it sort of it disguises itself. It masquerades as another format. And a good example for that is, is, for example, let me have a look. This is a commercial who disguises itself as a film. So you see also that cliffhangers come about. You, you see like a little climax is built in, in the commercial. And it's very, very, very different before even when you had the news with the three basic networks before 1980. Sometimes commercials were, were extremely long, from 30 seconds to one, one minute. man with one single goal, justice, and a woman both desperately guarding a secret. The mystery of double shaving technology. It took Vandenberg 22 years to discover double shaving technology. One blade gently lifting, the second cutting the hair with incredible precision. Better, closer, smoother. Others are less patient. Speak! The history of double shaving technology, starring Henry Stewart as Mark. It's gold, honey. Pure gold. Let's make love. Roger Smith as Phillips engineer Vandenberg. You, of all people, why you? Anne Willis as the passionate Marlies. It's about time we talked. Words. Peter Vlachin. We are ready. As Boris. Go. Now. The mystery of double shaving technology. It's fill a shave. Feel it. Live it. Now. So when what's funny is that it disguises itself as a, as a trailer, but it's still a commercial. And by, I found also like with the 80s how the news format came about. The news format very much, it's not by coincidence if you have the beginning of CNN, you also, nine months later, you have the beginning of music television, and you see that CNN starts borrowing from music television, and that you have suddenly you have beats underneath the news, and the news is dramatized as if it was a fiction film. And you see Hollywood codes are borrowed to actually illustrate the news. And you see how formats are trying to borrow from one another. And I think that field, it's precisely what I was interested in also, like for example, for double take, but also for dial history. But for double take, uh, I, I thought it was, since Hitchcock always laughed with the commercial, I thought, why don't we use a commercial to, or five commercials to interrupt the film I was making. So you have literally five commercial breaks in double take and they are spersed in a very strategic way that whenever you get bored, maybe you know, you, you, you pepped up with, uh, with this coffee commercial. But not only that, in double take, the commercial had become a protagonist. It's sort of that in, in the script in double take, the coffee commercial is written in such a way in, within the story that the coffee is not just a coffee, definitely not for Hitchcock. The, the coffee is always a poison cup of coffee. And you see that while 
Hitchcock is meeting Hitchcock, which is taken from a Borges story, Borges story where Borges meets Borges, written by George Louis Borges, where he's in the act of committing suicide. And here, uh, um, when Tom McCarthy, the writer that I worked with for Double Take, he wrote the story of Hitchcock meeting Hitchcock, but here it's a meditation on the perfect crime. And the crime is that one Hitchcock is trying to get rid of the other, and by means actually of poisoning the other one's coffee. Sort of the coffee commercial is sort of written into the plot that it becomes sort of a murder weapon. And it's sort of like an analogy also to Hitchcock who laughed with the commercial where the commercial becomes a weapon. But not only that, it's also when the one Hitchcock who represents, who the older Hitchcock would, I would say he's more like the Hitchcock, the filmmaker, would talk when they had that this dialogue. It sort of also says, but television killed cinema. I don't know if I would agree because they, in conjunction they still exist of uh, both side by side. But we had sort of like a plot where, where that was set up. And it's, it's taken basically also from a conversation that happened in 1962 between François Truffaut and, and Hitchcock when François Truffaut was visiting Hitchcock on the set of The Birds in Los Angeles. Now, this is like in August, 12th of August, it's the day before the birthday of Hitchcock when Truffaut visited the set. And what, when I was um, exploring that sort of year, 1962, you know, you have September, October, two months later, it, in August already, Khrushchev was sending missiles to Cuba already. They, they were on their way and they were being installed. And it breaks in the open in, in October when Kennedy gives his speech about on 7 o'clock at night of, uh, I think it's sort of 16 or 17 of October. It's that you, there's never has reached such a big television audience because of that sort of um, Cold War situation. And you see also in the Philips Saving commercial, it's sort of framed by that Cold War arena. It's sort of the, the, the James Bond spy, the James Bond format. And that's also for me is interesting that I wanted to explore and double take is sort of, you have a very intimate story, a discussion, a, a dialogue between two guys. But then I wanted to frame it, what Hitchcock very often does as well, is sort of he frames a, a love story, an intimate story, which is liberalized by a sort of a political context. The political context, the Cold War, or let's say German Nazi, Nazi Germany in, in Notorious, or if you pick the Cold War in North by Northwest, it's sort of interesting as far as it adds to the sort of the tension that is set up between the two characters that are separated in, in their sort of longing for one another. Sort of in double take, you have also those two strata. It's sort of Hitchcock talking to Hitchcock, but underneath you have that Cold War arena which sort of is played out through television. And, and again, uh, it's sort of a, a, a very important analysis was how fear got instilled within society through the spectacle of the television. And why 1962 for me was sort of crucial because we had the Iraq war and then the, second, the first Iraq war was sort of crucial for making dial history and coming to terms with, with as a filmmaker studying at, 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 in New York at the time of like seeing the war being... If seeing the development of the war on, on television in New York and sort of how that got spliced with ice cream commercial, how that informed the way I was working through Dial history. And sort of the second Iraq war, which was totally different, the manipulation was even like 360 degrees. Sort of that, that the fact that sort of that fear had so become commodified and, and uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but... Uh, it, 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 that sort of was crucial to work through the elements in Double Take because in the background it was always there. And at the time with the editor in Los Angeles where we were working through Double Take, 
he was reading at the time the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein. And in the shock doctrine, what Naomi Klein points at, and, and I think her analysis is very accurate, is that before, you know, 60s, 70s, capitalism had to sort of stabilize the country before it could sort of send its, its corporations. But nowadays, instead of stabilizing a democracy, they actually destabilize a country because they make more money from disasters and catastrophes than actually from stabilizing a country. And she calls it the next stage of capitalism is disaster capitalism. It's the commodification of fear. And she ends her book with sort of a, a case example, which is Israel. And she says the peace process will always fail because whenever there's a terrorist attack, you know, the economy of Israel goes up. And sort of that will never help the peace process because it's sort of contradictory. And I think it's very accurate analysis of what's going on also with the Iraq war. Now, I think I'm drifting off from my itinerary. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the video library. Um, maybe let's go back to the video library because it, it deals a lot also with those themes. And uh, a point of departure was also like how, as a filmmaker, can you carve out uh, a niche within mainstream media? How can you still have a critical distance from media and and mainly mainstream media and, and how can you relate to that? Also, not only, not only you know, as an artistic practice, but also, you, you know, trying to define your role as an artist or a filmmaker within the political landscape. That doesn't necessarily mean that the work has to be political, but inherently that question is always there. So, and one example that we thought was sort of crucial when we made the video library was that whenever collecting selection of tapes was that we very much questioned that very act of watching television not only by the way it was installed because we installed the video library in a way that the visitor became his own curator to choose from a set of videotapes but also the fact that there was a cup of coffee that that whenever and like in the documentary itinerary the guides always took the group of visitors through the documenta and always ended up at the video library because there was a different sense of time people interrupted their visit because they had a cup of coffee and it took a lot of time to sift through the videotapes. If, if you would have watched everything, it would have taken a week, which was never possible, but it's okay also to fast forward or put in another tape. But sort of that very act of questioning television and the fact that, well, in the conviction that a television viewer is never a passive consumer, there's always an active element of recontextualization, not only in the itinerary of the museum, but also the fact of what you're watching. There's always a critical distance. The, the, con the consumer is never a consumer as such. There's always a sense of humor or a sense of iconoclastic pleasure. And sort of one example would be Brian Springer, which was part of the very early video library. And what he did sort of with his collection was trying tapping things from satellite at the moment sometimes of the commercial break, when, for example, Larry King would be on location, let's say in San Antonio, while he was interviewing George Bush Sr., the president, they would send footage already unscrambled to Atlanta, to the headquarters of CNN, but he would be able to pluck in that moment and tape it off from the satellite when they were actually having discussions that you're not supposed to hear. And what was interesting is that, you know, he would be able to reveal how politics and media are constructed, how fictions actually proliferate in, in mainstream politics in 1992 was the year of kings there was the lapd beating of rodney king videotaped from an apartment balcony and the hovering coverage of tv cameras and helicopters circling the city as the public rebelled 
It was nearly 25 years after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and Bill Clinton, a child of the 60s, was campaigning to become commander-in-chief, a king among the contenders. Hold on just a minute. Here's Larry King. Hello? Then there was Larry King, who was anointed as the father of talk show democracy because TV viewers could phone his program and ask the candidates questions on the air. The viewer calls to King's show was seen as a seat of a future TV democracy in which citizens could vote for a candidate or pending legislation by picking up a special remote control and voting yes or no. Taking viewer calls on Larry King's show is TV evangelist Pat Robertson, whose organization, the Christian Coalition, seeks working control of the Republican Party by 1996. I'd like to ask Mr. Robertson two quick questions. One, what he thought about the Bush quail commercials. Were they effective? Should they have had more family values on them? Also, how can you say you want a party of inclusion when you're so blatantly anti-gay? Behind the scenes and off the air, Robertson's media advisor tells Robertson how to turn around or spin the caller's question. Well, I am moved. I want a kinder and gentler nation. This Bush campaign phrase was written by spin doctor and speechwriter Peggy Noonan. Because America is so infused by media that we are all spinning in a way. Uh, that it is, that it is... We're uh, embellishing our story. Uh, embellishment is okay. There's... What's not okay? Where does, uh, where does spin the begin? The disingenuous part, the, the calculating, this isn't the whole truth part. If he tries to corner you on the can, do the same thing, slide off it. Go back to the inclusion. Mm. You've got to get, you expand the party, and you've got to bring everybody together. You can't worry about the problems of 1992, you've got to look ahead to 96. Mm -hmm. Focus on the future. Anyone with a home satellite TV system, like the ones you see in bars or in people's yards, could have picked up Robertson and his spin doctor chatting off air. Dish owners are able to receive two types of TV. One is the regular TV programming you normally see on cable or the broadcast networks. Is that uh, Helmstead still the next one? The other type of TV is the satellite feed, in this case the feed of George Bush and Larry King chatting during a commercial break. Kind of weird being seen around the world. Technology. Saddam Hussein is watching this during Satellite feeds are used by the networks to transmit images of news events from around the world. An event covered by the network is transmitted up into space to a satellite. The satellite receives and retransmits the image of the event back down to Earth to the network's headquarters, where the video image is edited and contextualized as television. The home satellite dish owner can watch regular TV, or they can tune in the satellite feed and see the event before it has been packaged by the networks as television. In 1992, I bought a couple of satellite dishes and spent the entire year flipping through the channels looking for feeds. 
I'd lock onto a satellite and go channel by channel through its transmission, recording the feeds. Then I would move on to the next satellite, and the next one, and the next one. By the end of the year, I'd recorded more than 500 hours of feeds. Don't put a lot of that garbage. What is this? Are we on the national? Can we turn that on? I don't want to be on national television. Some of the feed guests knew, and some didn't know, their images were being broadcast unscrambled and visible to over three and a half million dish owners across North America. Those who knew they were being watched attempted to stay out of satellite TV's wide frame. But after spending hours a day inside of a television studio, television had become their home. White House studio, Bush would go up on a satellite, give a five-minute interview with a local news anchor, disconnect, hook up with another local news anchor, give an interview, disconnect, hook up with another one, and do this again and again and again. This type of satellite whistle-stop campaigning is called the satellite tour. This is a technician at the White House hooking up with TV stations in South Carolina and Florida for a satellite tour by Barbara Bush. Channel 4, do you read us in Washington? W-Y-F-F. Come in. Come in. Remember that every single man, woman, and child in the state of South Carolina awakens to a freer, safer world because of George Bush. W-I-S. You hear us in Washington. I would remind people that every single morning we all awaken to a safer, freer world because of George Bush. W-C-B-D. Do you hear us in Washington? And, Nicole, I would remind you and the people of Florence that all of us awaken every single day to a freer, safer world because of George Bush. WCSC, do you read us in Washington? They themselves awaken every single day to a freer, safer world because of George Bush. Sort of that was a very good example for us to work around as sort of like how he made his own VHS collection around trying to deconstruct media, and we did something similar. I'm going to jump now to the YouTube tech. I'm, I'm, I'm quickly going to show a little bit of examples that we have now in the video library here because it sort of relates its well and it jumps also to, to you know, uh, the next millennium, actually. So, and I sort of think that fits very well together. You know, when, when Patricia Mellencamp was writing about, uh, in her book, High Anxiety, about CNN. She, she sort of had a Freudian analysis of how television, or definitely how CNN in the 80s started to work. It, she called it sort of an obsessive behavior, is, is, is that while before the 80s you had sort of the news format, which you watched at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, and then you watched it again at 11 or something. But with CNN, news became around the clock. It was 24 hours a day, and you zap away, you come back, and they call it a sort of drop-in style. You come back and you zap towards CNN. You haven't missed anything because it's sort of, it's, it's also zap-proof news. You zap away, but then you come back and you drop in and you haven't missed a thing because they keep on repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And it's sort of also like with, with the idea of the Iraq war and the weapons of mass destruction. There was hardly an analysis. It was just trying to, in a very obsessive way, repeating and repeating and repeating. And then that repeating becomes a reality. 
instead of having an analysis that sort of corresponds with what's really going on. Weapons of mass destruction. 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 The smoking gun. Weapons of mass destruction, and he's used them. Weapons of mass destruction. Terrorists. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Biological. Weapons of mass destruction. Terrorists. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Terrorists. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. It could have a nuclear weapon. Chemical, biological. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Uh, weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Acts of terrorism. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. The weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. The weapons of mass destruction. 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 It's nuclear. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass terror. And weapons of mass destruction. Terrorist acts. Terrorists. Weapons of mass destruction. Nuclear weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. Biological. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Iran has a weapons of mass destruction. Terrorist threats. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Biological weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. Chemical. They have weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass terror. Weapons of mass terror. Weapons of mass destruction. Massive death, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass, mass destruction. destruction. These horrible weapons, weapons of mass destruction. destruction, weapons of mass 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 destruction, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, the mushroom cloud, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass, mass destruction. destruction. Weapons of mass, mass destruction. destruction. Weapons of mass, mass destruction. Okay, so this is one example from the the Utopotech. What was crucial in the Utopotech was sort of like the media manipulation was going on with the Iraq War became sort of uh, because every video library sort of has a theme and there is a local plugin. And uh, for example, when I was uh, was invited once to install it in in the Tegel prison in in Berlin. The inclusion is totally different. Also, I was actually very much questioning my assumptions because I thought, wow, let's do something with media. And, and uh, uh, at the time, Dalhisi was just out, maybe hijacking, and maybe the prisoners will, will be very interested in that. But none of that because they actually were calling for uh, a, a video library that dealt a lot with pornography. So I had to re-question totally what the video library was about. But with the YouTube Protect, a lot of the stuff that was included was all about media manipulation. But also still, what I was still interested in was also the fact that how you could like turn a genre upside down. And the, the YouTube Protect uh, was actually upon invitation of Charlotte Liuzon, as somebody who works within the mainstream business. She's actually a producer at Passion Pictures, and Passion Pictures has, has a bureau in Paris and in London, and they make real-time commercials, but also stuff for MTV. But sort of that aligns with sort of the world out there. I, I think that's always sort of interesting because as, as maybe in, in, 
in, in my role as a video maker, as a filmmaker, is that by the 60s, 70s, it was all this idea of like try, trying to come up with, with sort of a, a counter television, a television that was outside of mainstream media, sort of come up with this global village. But at the time of like, by the 90s and, and, and nowadays, media manipulation is so out there and you're so much part of that world that actually you cannot but be having a schizophrenic stance. You're always part of it, but still trying to, to create a critical distance.